Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So Liz. Yes. I have some really good news aside from our awesome guest that we have today. We'll okay, keep a mystery. We'll keep a mystery until <laughs> our mystery yeah. officially announce him. Um, it looks like Anthony Fauci is uh, freaking out a little bit this week. What? Mm-hmm. what? Tell me, tell me. If you don't agree with him, you don't agree with science. You got to go soyance, like soy boy, soy soyance, which is fitting, right? He actually had like a little tiny meltdown when uh, about people suggesting he should go to jail, which I thought was like, will probably be the <laughs> highlight of my year. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine how that would go down, but I can see he is not used to being criticized, which I guess for a government official is not unusual uh, or a lifelong career government official like Fauci's been in government for about what, 44, 50 a years, years. Mm-hmm. no, probably 55 years or something. Jeez Louise. Crazy. All right. You want me to play the clip so we can listen Let's to him? Let's hear it. All right. Attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science, because all of the things that I have spoken about consistently from the very beginning have been fundamentally based on science. Sometimes those things were inconvenient truths for people and there was pushback against me. So if you are trying to, you know, get at me as a public health official and a scientist, You're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. And anybody that looks at what's going on clearly sees that. You have to be asleep not to see that. That is what's going on. Science and the truth are being attacked. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. You know, I love when he, uh, that he refers to himself in the third person. When you're attacking Fauci, you're attacking science. What a what a joke! He, I can definitely I agree with you. He's he's on edge. He is he yes. is on edge. He's just not used to being criticized, but or not even criticized, but held to account. In other words, this guy has controlled our lives for the last eighteen months. He is flip flopped around all over the place, and anyone who contradicts him or asks for an explanation or more information regarding his edicts is silenced or canceled or uh, censored. And so I don't really feel bad for him right now. Shoes on the other foot, Tony. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, moving right along then we, that was a good way to start. And I'm sure we'll talk <laughs> about this more with our next guest, the one and only, I, I swear to God, this guy must never sleep because he just works nonstop. Um, our good friend, Jack Posobiec, who has a new book out, and I'm sure lots to say about that and everything else happening this week. So, Jack, welcome to the Happy Hour Podcast. Oh, sorry, wait. Yeah, I mean, hi. Yeah, what's up? <laughs> he's getting ready. Like, he's getting ready for the, the great reset. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. No, the the World Economic Forum actually just called me out by name the other day. I was I was I was so happy. It was wonderful. What, why? What, uh, so, are you on a list? Yeah. 
Yeah, they the, so yeah, I guess Klaus Schwab must have been very mad that um, we were all talking talking about his great reset and making fun of him. Um, you know, we were making all these memes of Doctor Evil, but changing the face to Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab, you know, he like has that perfect Bond villain voice, right? Like you will own nothing, ha 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 ha. And uh, and so yeah, they they called me out for they they claimed that it's really old one too. It was um. When I had found this leak of Emmanuel Macron's emails from 2017 and uh, when he was in the run up before he was like president. And so I had tweeted us, oh, look, here's this this link of uh, Macron emails. And I did hashtag Macron leaks. And then I was in Miami. So I went off to a party and the thing went like super viral. And I didn't even know. And it was back when Drudge was like, like, you know, uh, you know, good. And so I was like top of Drudge and all. And I'm getting, uh, you know, getting called by my my boss at the time. Like, Jack, where are you? My phone's charging in the bathroom, you know. And um, and so they were like, you know, the World Economic Forum was like, we have to worry about this Jack Posobiec. He's a known disinformation agent. And I'm like, that wasn't disinformation. Those were real emails. Like, you guys are just mad because I found them. Yeah, that's the technique now is to say anything that's inconvenient to them is fake. Like, you know, like like questioning whether or not Antifa exists when you can write a book about it or when they're they're coming at you in literally federal parks or asking about why is it that, you know, this this virus that seems to have all the same characteristics of experiments that were being done in the Wuhan lab is breaking out just, you know, a couple miles out outside of the Wuhan lab. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm surprised that you wrote a book on Antifa because I was told by Gerald Nadler that it was just an idea. And, <laughs> and so now now it's like not it's apparently it's not an idea. Um, well, so my my kind of thing on that is my response to it is, you know, number one, you know, I guess the marketing pitch is once you've read this book, you'll know that anyone who says Antifa is just an idea is a complete lunatic. And they are. Um, but actually, you know, the more. Um, the more academic answer, I suppose, or scholastic answer would be that, sure, Antifa is an ideology, the same way that radical Islam is an ideology, right? But it's also an ideology that creates a movement that sparks networks. Those networks then form cells. Those cells operate within certain regions and then they conduct activity. So, yes, it's an it's an idea at the top. It's an extremist ideology. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how they'll use that as some sort of false because when it comes to Antifa. But when you but when Joe Biden gets up there and says, what's the most dangerous threat to the United States of America? And he'll say it's white supremacy. And I said, well, that that's an ideology, too. Right, Joe? So why is it that this one is the greatest threat to America and the other one isn't a problem because it is just an ideology. Can you can you explain that to me? It's that he forgot. But of course he forgets because now Joe Biden has this thing where he's like, um, it's like every day there's a new greatest threat. Have you guys seen this? So now it's then it's climate change is the greatest threat. And then, you know, economic disaster is the greatest threat. And every day there's a new greatest threat. Well, apparently we're just doing like the truth by consensus, right? Like what's true about the virus changes on a monthly basis, weekly basis, if possible. Um, and I guess that's what's useful for Biden and whoever's running Biden, uh, you know, to do it. And of course, why wouldn't he do it? He's not called, he's never called out on it, right? I mean, if you could get away with saying anything you wanted at any time to be useful to you and nobody would call you to account, you would most likely continue to do it. So um, what, what was the most interesting thing you learned about Antifa while you were writing this book that you didn't know ahead of time? 
that I didn't know ahead of time. Well, so it's it's interesting because a lot of this is, you know, my own you know, it's sort of a, a mix between my own experiences with Antifa, then the ideology ideology of sort of anarcho communism, which you know, which Antifa is derived from, and then also the history of those communist anarchist actions going starting all the way back to Weimar Germany. We get into the anarchists of the 1800s. Um, and then we take that all the way up to today. So I, I think maybe two or three things that were really stand out to me on that were number one, and this is what I this one always stops people in their tracks when I say it is, did you know that we had a president of the United States who was assassinated by an anarcho-socialist, right? Oh, okay. And people are like, what are you talking about, right? JFK was, you know, was, you know, depending on which theory you ascribe to, but none of them seem to be an anarcho-socialist or, you know, Lincoln, you know, that's Confederate. So, you know, well, actually, it's William McKinley. William McKinley was shot 1901, Buffalo, New York, by an anarcho-socialist who had just gone to a meeting of anarchist speaker Emma Goldman. She gets up there and says, you know, we need to kill all the masters, right? You know, um, we should not have any rulers, um, this this is part of a sort of a spate of violence that's really held throughout the late 1800s, early 1900s that leads up to World War One and uh, Gavrilo Princip killing um, uh, killing Archie Ferdinand. That leads to the beginning of World War One. And so this is a guy, Leon Cholgosh. He's an anarcho socialist, walks up to uh, to McKinley, kills him. Um, he's then caught. He's tried. He's hung. And this is what allows Teddy Roosevelt, who at the time was the vice president, to become the the youngest president in U.S. history. So and he's 45 when he's elected. So it's it's really interesting that you have this huge part of U.S. history. Right. We've only had four presidents that were assassinated. And yet one of them was killed by somebody who really was this sort of proto form of what we might call Antifa today. And we simply do not talk about it. You know, what's interesting though, is I was talking to, I was on a podcast with, um, I'll put it this way, is someone who's uh, a little bit older than me. Uh, we're talking about this. And he said that actually he was taught in school back in the sixties that McKinley was killed by an anarchist, by an anarchist. And that has been completely excised from the textbooks today. And then so uh, Teddy Roosevelt, when he gives his first State of the Union address, half of the address is going after anarchism and anarchists. He writes the Anarchist Exclusion Act. Congress passes this still in the books, by the way. And it's this huge I mean, you would have to compare it. to I mean, think of it. The president of the United States is killed by one of them. Um, and so there's this huge response from the federal government. It's the only thing I could compare it to more recently would be the response to radical Islam following 9-11. And so it's this massive part of U.S. history that's done, that involves Teddy Roosevelt, who's, of course, one of our most famous presidents. He's, he's on Mount Rushmore, and yet it's completely been forgotten, overlooked. You don't hear about it on the History Channel. It's been totally whitewashed, or you could say redwashed, I guess, from the uh, from the history books, the same way that, in general, the history of communism is not taught the same way that the history of fascism is in in schools today. Um, have you been to any, or for our listeners, um, have you been to any events? Like, have you come face to face with the Antifa crowd? And have you, in your research, did you notice that there's a change? Like, have has it developed from its original beginnings in 
uh, back, I guess, in not Nazi Germany, if my if I am correct. Have you know? Is there been a development? Is it the same thing? And um, you know, have you been mixed in with them at their? I don't want to say events. I guess riots. Well, I mean, they so um, two two questions. I'll I'll answer the first part first. So have I been infiltrating Antifa? Um, I've been in, infiltrating Antifa since uh, 2016, um, early on in really after the president's um, win, President Trump's win in November of 2016, Antifa began holding planning events in Washington, D.C. for an attack on his inauguration. So there was no peaceful transfer of power between Obama to Trump. You know, I know that, you know, they try to talk about January 6th as being the the only time there's ever been an attack on democracy. Right. That's been, the, you know, sort of the, the, the highlight of this. But, you know, actually, no, there was an attack on democracy um, at the actual inauguration of President Trump where the attendees were attacked. And this was conducted by Antifa. Uh, I infiltrated their meetings, their planning meetings in a church basement that was held at St. Stephen's um, just north of the White House and sort of the National Mall. And I break through the sights, the sounds, the smells, right, the level of sophistication that was going into these things, the various working groups that they held, um, the idea of a black block. So people don't know what a black block is. That's when you see them all marching and wearing black, right? That is a black block. And there's actually a hierarchy to it. There is leadership to it. There are people that are sort of calling out commands. There are tactical pre-planned responses. So when someone, you know, one person hits somebody with a milkshake and then the next one goes and throws a punch and the other one is putting up their umbrellas so that, you know, cameras can't capture it because you, you don't want uh, journalists seeing this for the most part, right? That That's all pre-planned. You know who the people in the black block are that are going to be doing this. And so... Learning all of that, sharing what I could with the D.C. Police Department as well as the Secret Service and federal law enforcement, we were able to get some of them arrested, um, but obviously not enough of them to stop the attack that was coming on uh, President Trump's inauguration January 20th. And it was amazing to me to see this because we had the information. They told us what they were going to do. They told us where they were going to be. We shared it with federal authorities. Federal authorities did not provide an adequate level of security to people that attended the inauguration. And so they were hit by this thing. And you saw cars that were set on fire. You saw people who were attacked in the streets. Uh, you saw uh, incendiary devices going off. Again, something has been completely excised from the conversation. Fast forward. Do you, do you think that? Yeah. They, they didn't take the information that you gave them seriously. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to explain the inadequate security. Did they not take you seriously? Are they, were they sympathetic? Were they worried about, I don't know, bigger threats? Did they underestimate what might happen? What, what is your, what do you think? What's well, I think it was something along. So I think it's something along the lines of them just saying, Hey, this is a bunch of punk kids. There's always protesters in DC. Um, they're not going to be doing anything violent. They're just going to be out there holding signs and yelling about Trump. That's not really something we have to worry about, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so while there was security measures for the National Mall itself, what Antifa did was they learned about those security measures because it was all public and mapped out areas to attack Trump supporters and attendees as they were leaving the event. And so because the federal cordon had only been set up around the National Mall, then it left everyone to be essentially a sitting duck as they were walking back to their cars, walking back to the train. And Antifa knew this. And so they had planned out in advance where they were going to commit these attacks. We had actually uncovered an entire map of where this was going to 
going down. Um, they call it it's going down.org or some of their websites. And we shared all of this with federal uh, law enforcement. We explained to them what was going on. And for the most part, they completely did not take it seriously. But it sounds like the information you gave them was very specific. In other words, this isn't just a bunch of rowdy kids out to make trouble. It's like you're talking about basically the way military plans actual military action. So when you go to law enforcement and you say this is what's happening and you give them this information, again, not a bunch of kids having a good time, but plans, you know, action, you know, very, very premeditated um, plans and to have it not taken seriously. And that's back in white 2016. And it so seems this is like December 2016. At that point, all of the things we've been saw for the five years since, and it's like, they still don't seem to take it seriously. And in fact, they actually use the same me. church for the, in fact, they actually use the same church for their meetings to this, uh, to this day to extend. And, um, for the people that were charged, that were eventually caught, arrested, and charged for these attacks, it's certainly attacks on businesses. Um, you know, if you had, there's a Starbucks that's near there, there's other coffee shops, other restaurants in the area had their windows smashed, and so there were mass arrests at this time uh, when they realized the violence was actually being conducted. But the vast majority of them had their charges completely dropped by the Department of Justice. Uh, by the District of Columbia. And so they did not face jail time. Some of them took a few plea deals, but um, the vast majority, they called it the Disrupt J20 defendants, had their charges dropped. They had people, they had lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild that were brought in. This is a an organization that receives very high level funding. We go through this in the book as well. I call it the, you know, sort of dark money networks that are going to funding these organizations. And you know, it's interesting. And, and we also we have a whole chapter on infiltrating Chaz and a whole chapter about this. Uh, and it's the cover of the book, the Lincoln Park, um, where they, you know, they came at me and tried to, uh, you know, tried assaulted me, tried to knock me down onto concrete, smash my skull on uh, concrete steps. But, you know, it sort of held my ground was a, and was able to defend myself from that. But when you look at how they've organized themselves versus in really Weimar Germany in the 1930s and even before that with the Red Front groups of the 1920s, there are some very striking similarities. And one thing that actually does come out to put, to tie the two together was the idea of having an international legal fund that was set up for them. Now, in the past, this was set up by the common turn. So the communist international, uh, which of course was headed by Leon Trotsky and then under Stalin with the idea being that since Bolshevism had been able to take over in Russia, that they would then foment revolutions, communist uprisings that would destabilize and take over other countries. Their, their predominantly uh, main target was Weimar Germany for destabilization. So this is in that same time period, 1920s, 1930s, that Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists are also organizing to overthrow Weimar Germany. Of course, we know which one uh, came out on top there. But when you look at the Red Front groups, one of the very first things they knew they all needed was some sort of legal representation, some sort of legal fund that would be able to serve as a backstop for them so that when you're telling people, hey, we want you to go out and commit these crimes, that there will be some level of defense for you if you're caught. This is what allows them to have that sort of uh, mentality of going out into the streets, knowing that someone will be there to defend them. You see the exact same 
dynamic going on today with this National Lawyers Guild, the way that they are in there protecting Antifa, then they go and defend Antifa whenever any of them are brought up on charges. And look, I'm not saying anything against the right of people to be defended, but I'm saying that there is a complete one side to this and that it is absolutely a strategic decision on behalf of the organizations that fund them and the organizations that put together this National Lawyers Guild, National Legal Guild, because they know who it is that they're defending all the way up to Kamala Harris, who's our vice president, you know, was tweeting out links to the Minnesota Freedom Fund uh, during the, the beginning of the George Floyd riots in Minnesota, it was no well, Minneapolis, basically in uh, in May of 2020. So you see this same exact dynamic played out. And I don't even realize that they know that what they're doing is exactly the same thing that Leon Trotsky and the Soviet Union were doing through the Communist International for the Red Front fighting brigades in Germany and other countries that they were hoping to destabilize. Jack, back to what you were saying about the inauguration, not only those protesters got off the hook and their records expunged, but D.C. just paid out a settlement with ACLU um, on That's behalf right. of some of the arrested protesters. So not only does their side like not just get arrested and thrown in solitary confinement in a D.C. gulag, but they actually just got paid out a couple hundred of them for uh, excessive force and violating their civil rights during the January 2017 uh, not insurrection against Donald Trump. Yeah, let me pull up the exact, um, I know we have the word of the book here in front of me and the settlement agreement. I, it, it was about, yeah, almost $2 million. Millions. Yeah, $2 millions. million paid out to what, what essentially were Antifa anarchists and the ACLU who defended them over the the quote excessive force of arresting the people who came to disrupt, attack, um, and in, literally in their own words, an attack on our democracy. They were trying to stop. And you could this again. This isn't conjecture. This isn't something right. that you have to glean from you know some timeline. This is their own words. We want to stop President Trump from being inaugurated. It's the name of what their operation was, was Disrupt J20, right? It's right there in the title. Compare that, the, that level of sophistication of this operation with the, the I don't want to say equivalent, but the people on the right. Um, Julie's covered the January 6th, con, the, the aftermath of that. And, you know, these are people that are just really have been hung out to dry uh, with horrible legal representation, if any, a bad legal representation. Um, they're sitting in prison. And meanwhile, the soon to be vice president of America was fundraising to help get out people who are on video committing actual violent crimes like to, to private property. Um, what do you what do you have? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, the, the way that the right and the left activists are the contrast between the two. Well, what, what you really see, and, and I get into this in the book, actually, this specific situation, because we, um, you know, I, I wrote the bulk of this throughout 2020, but then also, you know, we had a little bit of time where I could insert a few things in the run up to the release. And so I was able to add some parts about this, talking about the FBI. And we re it actually, the whole thing opens up with 
a conversation between Trump and Chris Ray in the Oval Office right there at the Resolute desk where and, you know, Trump, of course, we know how, how President Trump talks and um, essentially what he was saying about Antifa. He says the same thing in private. He says it in public. But it's Ray sitting across from the president at the Resolute desk, shrugging his shoulders across this thing mm. and saying, you know what? We, we don't really go after them. That's that's more of an ideology. And Trump just looks at him and says, you know, that is a damn lie, Chris. And you know it. I see this stuff night after night on Twitter. We've got Homeland Security up in Portland. They're telling me they're getting attacked by gangs of these thugs. And you're going to sit there and tell me it's not happening. And Ray, you know, he starts looking around. Well, we're going to work on it. We'll do this. We'll see. We'll see. You know, and again and again, you see this happening. Now you flip it forward. Look at how the FBI is going after uh, the January 6th defendants or the suspects. You're getting uh, photos tweeted of like grandmothers in, you know, winter hats yeah. with American flags yeah. that look like they're just kind of standing around. And the FBI is treating it like this is public enemy number one, where you never have seen this happen with night after night of. The Portland attacks, which was a federal facility with the attack on me, which was in a federal park. Um, you know who I had to identify the people who were coming after me? I did. You know who, after, who had to identify the people going up after Portland? All right. It was the people who were the victims or it was independent journalists, citizen, citizen journalists going through the crowd and trying to match up people with, um, you know, finding different uh, identifiers and then going on social media. Right. You never saw this. In the, in, with the to the level that the FBI has taken with the January 6th riot uh, to identify people in the crowd. And you certainly don't see them going after people the way to the level they have and overcharging with the level they have in so many of these cases, you know, saying, oh, well, we can identify somebody's voice, but, you know, it's just somebody yelling in a crowd, right? Like you don't really have the full evidence there, but they're going for charges anyway. When it comes to these guys, when it comes to Antifa, it's the lowest charge imaginable. And then the slightest bit of pressure gets put on them and they 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 fold, they withdraw the charges, they apologize and they pay out millions of dollars in settlements. Um, you mean to say that the Justice Department doesn't have an entire database available for the public to read that's updated every day that lists the names and charges and details of the cases against Antifa, they don't have anything like that, like they do for January 6th. Oh, it's never existed. In fact, that's actually uh, a project that I've been having some discussions with uh, a few people who I won't name names, but people you guys would know about putting together, you know, kind of uh, I, I was saying we should call it like uh, Antifapedia is kind of the cute name for it. But Ooh, I like that. You know, I, I think it's good. I think it's it, I think it's good marketing. But, you know, there's other people who say like, well, you know, it should be the Antifa Research Center or the Center for Left Wing uh, Violence, that kind of, you know, want more a more studious title, um, which, you know, we might we might figure out one, one or the other. But essentially the same idea, just a database of every single person. And by the way, this this wouldn't be something we're just randomly picking people and saying, oh, you're Antifa, so we're going to dox you and pull your stuff up. No, people who have actually been charged, people who have actually been, been indicted, people like Michael Forrest Reinhold, who killed Trump supporter Aaron Danielson and this on the streets in cold blood in Portland, people like Daniel Allen Baker, who traveled all the way to Syria to participate in uh, essentially battlefield operations 
with a U.S. terror-designated group, uh, one of the Kurdish militias over there um, called the PKK, then comes back to America and joins the armed security at the CHAZ up in Seattle, right? And the FBI has all of this information and does nothing with it. Here's a guy who's getting training from a designated terrorist organization overseas, mind you, overseas on the battlefield in Syria, comes back to the United States. And what do they do? They put him in vice documentaries and Rolling Stone gives them write ups. That's amazing. Okay, I want to back up to one thing really quick. Why did Donald Trump not fire Chris (laughs) Ray? So the story goes and, you know, and this is not me saying I'm not making a, a normative uh, argument here. This is just a demonstrative argument. This is this is what happened, our descriptive argument, I guess you could say, that it um, Trump wanted to fire Ray, but remembered the debacle of how the firing of Comey went and how that led to Mueller, um, and so and that you, he was reluctant to do so. Then uh, Barr essentially tells him, and there's been other reporting on this, that. Barr basically said, if you fire Ray, I will resign. Okay, why would Barr say that? Like, why would he do that? Because at the end of the day, Barr and Ray are are institutionalists. And you see this across the bureaucracy. Their interest is uh, bringing, putting the system back in charge. They want to go back to the 1990s and early 2000s pre-WMD scandal where you can just get on TV and say whatever you want. You know, Merrick Garland was 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 in DOJ back then uh, as well. He's the current AJ, right? Um, just say whatever it is, and people just completely take your word for it. When you say that the uh, the Las Vegas shooter was, you know, a lone wolf and he had all those guns up there that he didn't use, you know, just you know, don't worry about that and don't worry about any of those things. And nobody asks any questions because, well. You know, you're this is the FBI after all. And the, I, I watch the X-Files every day and that's, you know, my favorite show. And so the FBI is great and uh, we have to take them at their word because they just are out for our best interests. And again, you see uh, these people who have been involved in many of these high level cases. They want to get back to the time, to a time where there wasn't independent media, where there weren't podcasts like yours or, or like what we do at Human Events. There weren't independent organizations out there with people doing real reporting, real journalism, to be able to actually ask these questions and to poke holes into the things that they're saying and have gained a massive, absolutely massive audiences. And this is why the World Economic Forum and others have put Target on my back because they know the amount of people listening to us. And now the fact that we've got uh, members of Congress. And at one point we had a president of the United States who were, you know, listening more to independent media than they were towards these corporate media uh, types that just kind of push whatever the company line is for the Department of Justice. Well, that's still disappointing. That's I understand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it's not a surprise, but I think Trump, when Trump got into office, he had a problem that any populist would have, which is that he didn't have anyone with institutional knowledge to come in with him. And so it was basically just a time of whack-a-mole. I mean, he could fire Ray, and then who was he going to put in charge? It, I mean, there, it's the same with almost any position there. He had a limited number of, of people that knew the system and were also loyal to him. Meanwhile, he was taking advice from, people 
because I think coming from the private sector and running your own business, you just don't expect people to lie to you about things. So you would probably think, well, if I tell a subordinate to do something that they're going to do it and it's just not works that way in, in the government. Yeah, I, I also maybe- I actually always recommend that people watch the um, the old British sitcom. Yes, Minister. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but it's it, it really gets into this where it's it's a politician that he's he's a member of parliament, um, but he becomes a member of the cabinet. And and it just shows how the civil service kind of manipulates and controls and pulls strings to essentially get what they really want, even though the minister thinks he's the one making the decision. They, but they'll then go explain, well, no, no, actually, you know, you can't do that. And here's why. And you can't do this. No, 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 minister. But then the minister, you know, finally, you know, gives up and acquiesces. And they, of course, say, yes, minister, of course, we'll follow your word uh, to to the letter. Yes, of course. So where do you think this civil unrest is going to go from here? Um, I, I think that the left and the government has done a good job of frightening many people on the right from ever engaging in a First Amendment protected activity. Um, I know Trump is planning a bunch of rallies. And I've said, like, I would never go to one. I mean, I didn't go before either. So that's that. But, you know, that that is going to be very carefully watched and if anyone steps on the grass you know off of the sidewalk they're going to get they're going to get arrested by federal authorities so but but so i think at the time where we currently are in a, a place where pushback from the right is tempered and and people are a little afraid versus the left which is even more empowered than they were you know, when Trump Trump was elected. So do you just see the this violence and the street activism and this direct action escalating now or continue to escalate? Well, I, I do think that you'll see more of that because, again, we you know we don't have that. We've got Antifa um, actions that are outstanding. In many cases, we've identified the people who have done it. Um, and you look at Biden taking away the executive order against statues, against some of the other orders that President Trump had put in because of Antifa action in uh, throughout that summer of rage in 2000, you know, we even talk about actually in the novel or not the novel, the book, we go through and do an entire timeline of the summer of violence of 2020. So um, completely memory hold, but just situation, action, outcome for every single one of them. And then we also go through some of the cases that have been derived from there. Now we're seeing, and you know, I almost wish this were, you know, like a, a website. And this is again why I feel like there should be a website on this, because we're seeing these laws be changed. And so you're every time you do that, you're sending a message to these groups that you can operate with impunity. And what we see typically is these angry, young, nihilistic men who feel that they have been, and but but increasingly women in many cases, actually. Um, you do see a lot more females these days now with within Antifa, the percentage is rising and the ratio is starting to balance out a bit that they are they feel disenfranchised by the system for one reason or another. And so instead of working within the confines of the system for reform or to seek uh, political um, political action that's favorable to their interests, they're going outside of the system. This is the same exact dynamic you saw in Weimar, Germany. I don't think we're at quite that point yet. But you definitely see the same types of people that are checking out. But the difference being that 
the the government, the Department of Justice and the media saying, you know, that if you join one of these right wing groups, you'll be prosecuted, you'll be persecuted, your life will be destroyed, you'll be fired, you'll be from your job, you'll be kicked off of all social media, you won't be able to uh, make any purchases. You want your payment processors will cut you down. Credit card companies will will shut you out. You won't be able to do your banking, et cetera, et cetera. But if you join Antifa, you'll be celebrated. The charges will be dropped against you. You might end up on CNN. You might even get paid by CNN for your footage. If you capture footage, for example, of Ashley Babbitt being killed, uh, like John Earl Sullivan did, an an event which, you know, I contend in the book that certainly something that he had a hand in in inciting the violence that led to uh, her shooting, Um, his screaming, his cajoling, his egging on of the crowd, you know, certainly served to incite what was going on there. And definitely played a role in in what the police officer who's down the other side, what he's seeing and, and sort of the decision that he made to pull the trigger. So the fact that this guy is is been completely overlooked and then CNN put him on on TV that night and paid him for the footage. Right. Though I do believe that uh, that that some of that funding may have been confiscated at this point because he is facing some charges. So. It really is a terrible situation. It is a it is a low point right now. If you're someone who's wondering what can we do about these organizations, but at the same time, I think that the pendulum has swung too far to one side too quickly, and you're already starting to see this in the way that so many suburban moms are 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 gearing up against um, critical race theory that you are going to see people lashing out you're going to see people fighting back and when i say that i mean in a political sense i mean organizing in a political sense against so much of this because people want to go back to normalcy they want to go back to the quality of life they had pre-pandemic they don't like the chaos they don't like the instability they want to get away from that they want to go back to normalcy and they are sick of it they're absolutely sick of it and so that is the bucket that i put antifa into and should the department of justice under um currently joe biden eventually i think it'll be kamala harris at some point and you know with merrick garland if they continue to get a free pass and certainly with the violence that we see in cities not it, it's it's not abating at all it's actually increasing throughout 2021 i think even though 2020 was the largest number of homicides that we've seen since the 1990s i i worry that 2021 is going to be even higher and particularly because you don't have see these da's doing it really anything about it in the inner cities and and as a reflection of the defund the police movement that people are going to fight back people are are going to get sick of it they're going to get fed up when you start messing with those quality of life issues that's why you start to see republicans winning in cities like down in texas and the rio grande valley and others that are traditionally democrat areas because these types of quality of life issues are the ones that really flip voters well i i do agree with you but i also think that the media um, gives a lot of this cover by not covering it, not highlighting it. I know um, I didn't even realize that there's a, an autonomous zone in the place where George Floyd was killed, where there's no cops. Apparently, there's also That's not right. white yeah. people allowed. And, you know, if you go ask the average person on the street, they have no idea. They do not know that. And so I do. On the one hand, I think you're right, especially where community violence is concerned. People know what's happening nearby them, what they can see. But most people don't realize that what they're seeing near them is also happening all over the place. It's just not getting reported. So I hope that that, you know, stokes stokes a response, because I think we're at a decision point 
now, especially. Well, I, think at some, oh, I think at some point it, it hits critical mass, and I, I think that's that's essentially what you're talking about. That once this stuff does hit critical mass, it will become too big to ignore, and then of course they'll have to act like, oh, we you know we were always planning to do something with this, et cetera, et cetera. So, do you see these this and the Antifa movement growing? outside of the usual places where you've seen action. I mean, we see action after there's an event that triggers it, whether it's a police, usually it is a police shooting of some sort, um, very quick, quick mobilization. But in, we see them in many large cities, but it seems like they're always almost perpetually going on in the Pacific Northwest. Do you see the Antifa movement growing even stronger in <clears throat> other large cities? Do, do you think that the stuff we've seen thus far has had uh, helpful to recruit more people to join the movement. It typically what you see is that the West Coast Antifa, or really the Pacific Northwest of Antifa, is much more violent and much more willing to engage in that those direct actions of violence. Whereas when it comes to East Coast Antifa, they're much more uh, litigious. They're more um, more sophisticated when it comes to doxing. They're more interested in getting you fired from your job, getting you kicked out of um, any organization where you may be a member, uh, going after children. We see this in schools. And unfortunately, what we're actually also seeing with these types of, you know, people call it cancel culture, but it's actually even more pervasive than that and quite more nefarious where you actually see these types of Antifa tactics now being employed by school boards, by teachers, by people who are involved with different families in schools. You're seeing it in companies. Um, we just had this guy in, in the military at, at human events where we're uncovering. He said, you know, if you're a, this, a battalion commander telling his soldiers, if you're a white male, you're part of the problem. So unfortunately, what we see is the ideology and tactics of this organization, this anarcho-socialist um, divisive destabilization organization being spread throughout various institutions, not only at the federal levels of our government, not only through our national institutions, but increasingly in the lower levels of community institutions like schools, uh, like school boards, even some churches are now starting to see this. And they're using these twisted ideologies of, you know, saying, well, you know, we're not communist, we're anti-fascist or we're not anti-American, we're anti-racist. And so to oppose us, you, you therefore, you know, playing these sort of rhetorical word games. This is actually where the word Antifa comes from in the first place, um, because the original Red Front Fighting Brigade um, uh, the Rotfront, uh, my, my German is terrible, um, was outlawed by what the Weimar Republic. So they had to come up with. So Ernst Talman, who is the head of the Communist Party in Weimar, Germany, has to come up with some new type of organization that that isn't banned by the by the national government. And so he says, well, we're not going to call ourselves the Red Front anymore. But we're still going to hold the red flags and we're going to call ourselves anti-fascist action. So we're not promoting communism. We're just saying we're anti-fascism. And this those that then goes on to become this, essentially the state religion of East Germany. We break that down throughout the book where uh, we all remember the Berlin Wall. This, of course, was the physical symbol of the Iron Curtain and in many ways the physical symbol of Soviet totalitarian communist repression. 
And what a lot of people don't know is that the Soviet Union uh, and well, the East Germany referred to the Berlin Wall in their official documents as the anti-fascist protection rampart. Uh, so this, again, is a rhetorical turn of phrase that communists use to support their own ideologies, their own actions, in this case, a, a physical barrier that of brutal repression. Um, people were killed from for trying to escape over it. Um, that's refer that's done in the name of anti-fascism. So, you know, when Joe Biden or others say, oh, this is just an idea, uh, this is an extreme ideology, one that in the past has been responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands, uh, certainly millions, if you account for all of communism. And uh, one thing that, you know, we didn't talk about it as much, but you also see them using same of this, some of these same tactics of struggle sessions. This is something that came about through the Chinese Cultural Revolution from the 1960s to the 1970s in China, about 10 years, where the entire country was turned upside down with Chairman Mao going through and inflaming, enraging, inciting, and radicalizing youth groups to go throughout the country, targeting their teachers, targeting their principals, targeting their own family members. Turn on your family members, right? Because they, what do they call them? Right-wing extremists. That's the exact mm -hmm. phrase that was used by Mao's China, by the CCP in the 60s and 70s, to say your parents might be right-wing extremists. Uh, they, they dug up you know, they were digging up the bodies of, of emperors and uh, members of the, uh, the past dynasties so they could denounce them as right wing extremists. This is how, how bad it got in China. And so when you see these same struggle sessions today, when you see these same people being targeted and uh, the radicalization techniques being used against certain groups in group in groups versus out groups in the United States, increasingly by assets of our federal government and our national security agencies, you really have to look at the past examples of where this has happened in history, where this has happened throughout the world and the results that came of it. And so when you see the demonization of an entire group of people as, uh, as some kind of other, where there is some problem with you because of your uh, political beliefs or because of your, your background, your ethnicity, right? These are serious problems and they've led to untold horrors throughout human history. Now, do you where do you do you think it's going to get that bad here? Like, do you think it's going to continue to escalate or do you think that there is a way to effectively push back? Um, well, I, I don't think it's going to get bad in, in, in the sense that I, I don't think we're going to have a, uh, a Chinese cultural revolution here along along Maoist lines that's going to get as brutal as it was in China in the 60s and 70s. But what I do think is that you're going to see something that's on the same scale, right? You Because we are seeing this happen nationwide. We're seeing the same insanity, the same mental illness be spread throughout the country. And so this that's exactly the same dynamic you saw in China. Now, what's going to happen eventually is these things, they go too far. And even Chairman Mao understood this. Um, because about halfway through the Cultural Revolution, he said, look, we can't have the Red Guards going after everybody and we need to do something about these militarized children. So they actually had the the army came in at one point, the PLA, uh, the Red Army, and rounded up the Red Guards of Mao and sent them all out to the, you know, the rural areas and sent them out to the farmlands because they, they just couldn't do it, deal with their cities being destabilized so much at this point. I don't think we have the capability or the wherewithal to do that in the United States. Uh, but you can see certain 
off ramps that people are starting to talk about. And I think you are going to get a backlash effect to all of this. You're going to get that in terms of Antifa. You're going to get that in terms of the violence in cities. That's one of my catchphrases lately is get out of cities, get out of cities. Uh, Because unfortunately, many of these cities like uh, my own, uh, I'm from right outside Philadelphia. But when you look at the city of Philadelphia, they continue to vote for these crazy left wing uh, DAs. in Seattle, and, and you see they're the choosing same it. thing. They're just choosing it, it. You see the same thing in Chicago, in San Francisco, in LA, in these large cities. They're putting they they reelect they elect them and then they reelect them. And so I think people that don't live in these cities and see the violence, what do you throw your hands up? Okay, great. Then I guess what you do is if you're in Oregon and you don't like Portland, you try and become part of Idaho. <laughs> you know. And I yeah, think I'm actually you, I'm actually are you um, part of that. I would. <laughs> When, whenever they bring that up, um, you know, about the Oregon one, I and they, they talk about this with Virginia, some parts of Virginia as well. Yeah. And they said they want to join. It's I guess it's Western Virginia wants to join with the state of West Virginia. I say no. I say go to the next level. Make your own state. Right. Because if you make your own state, you get two new senators, two senators and you get a governor yeah. and a state legislature. Make your own state. Come on. That's no. that's what West Virginia did during the Civil War. That's what we should that's what we should be doing uh, in all of these situations, because when you look at it politically right on the map, you see so many uh, city. The state of Illinois is a great example of this, where you see the city of Chicago is this one blue dot and the rest of the state is bright red. Right. How does that make yeah. any sense from a political standpoint? Where how are these people being represented when you have two completely different areas? Or, by the way, when you talk about something like gun laws, for example, um, what affects the people of Chicago is not the same thing that affects the people of rural Illinois, uh, the same way that the gun laws for Baltimore shouldn't necessarily be the same as the gun, as the gun laws in Western Maryland, because there there's no similarity between them whatsoever, other than arbitrary lines drawn on a map. Right. Um, so I have one last question for you, and I'd like to go back to before Trump was elected. It seems like that was quite an empowering event for the anti-fascist movement. So what was Antifa doing before Trump? I know they were around, but what what were they doing to, I don't know, um, you know, make their vision happen? Um, Well, what's really interesting is that when you look at Antifa's actions prior to Trump, it's almost like you're looking at a different, very different type of Antifa, because if you go back to the largest, um, really point where we see any type of Antifa activity going on in the United States prior to Trump. It's 2011 and it's Zuccotti Park, Occupy Wall Street, which OWS, which then spreads throughout the country, really throughout the world, these Occupy movements. And you see um, one ubiquitous feature of them is Antifa groups going in there. And so it's very, very different from that Antifa versus this Antifa was in the past, their targets were who? The elites, the rich, right. the one percent, um, obviously, in many cases, the the financial industry, um, elite politicians yeah. and and globalization, even going all the way back to the Battle of Seattle of 1999, which was largely led by Antifa. This is one of the first times you see Antifa violence on a wide scale in the United States, though, of course, uh, it, it existed in Western Europe prior to that, is that. They're against what China being allowed into the World Trade Organization. And so the Antifa that you see today that's empowered not by these ideals of populism, not by uh, the class warfare kind of stuff that you see coming along in uh, the early 2000s 
is a new Antifa that's focused on social justice warfare, that's focused on uh, racial elements. It's more race-based than economics, right? And in many cases, in so many cases, they're much more cultural, but they'll actually be on the same side as corporations like Citigroup and Bank of America and others that have now taken up this mantle because they realized that they can co-opt these groups, they can co-opt Occupy Wall Street. They don't need to uh, to fight against them if they can just co-opt them and get them fighting against the people that um, that are no threat to them or the people that even are on the same sort of the the would normally be. Uh, aligned with these sort of populist energies, but you get them to fight each other and then you can go go off and get scaf- get away scot-free and have a sort of free hand to do whatever you want. That's been the play over the past decade. And when Donald Trump was elected president, they were able to use him as a target to focus all of this energy. That is the reason for all the lies, the slanders, the hoaxes against Trump and Trump supporters was to create them into an, an, a sort of um, you know, insatiable target for so many of these groups so that everybody else who is deep in, and we're only finding out now how deep in bed they were with the Chinese Communist Party and other organizations, that they'd all be focused on Trump and nobody would be asking what anybody else was doing behind the scenes. Wow. Well, that's some good stuff, Jack. And where can people get your book? Obviously, Amazon. So give us the details on that. Give our listeners the details. Yeah, I keep it super simple for everybody. It's we bought AntifaBook.com. So you can just go to AntifaBook.com. You said, hey, who's that guy with the Antifa book, right? Already got you. Already there. AntifaBook.com. <laughs> you can see it. You've got all the information. We've got a few samples if you want to check it out up at HumanEvents.com. And of course, our daily uh, journalism and our reporting is getting posted there. But if you're interested in this book and learning about the history of anarchism and communism, how that leads to current day Antifa, uh, my own infiltration of Antifa and the targeting of the networks, really these dark funding networks, I call it the cornucopia of corruption that is that is fueling this violence. You go to AntifaBook.com, you can get it. Father's Day is like 10 days away. So, uh, you know, if you're if your dad's a reader, if somebody's interested in this is definitely the book you want to get him for that. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jack. And thank you, listeners, for joining us this week on Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.